Welcome back to Venture Studio, the podcast where your host, Dave Lerner, entrepreneur, angel investor in 70 plus companies and director of entrepreneurship at Columbia University, interviews the angel investors and venture capitalists who make up New York City's entrepreneurial ecosystem. I am your producer, Kevin Weeks. This week's guest is Ed Sim, founder of Bold Start Ventures, an enterprise seed fund which focuses on infrastructure and SaaS startups. If you missed Venture Studio episode 24 about a year ago with Ed's partner at Bold Start, Elliot Durbin, now would be a great time to check it out. All of our shows are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, and now Google Play. And of course, make sure to subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Venture Studio. And now I'm going to send it over to Dave for a quick preview of the episode. Dave? I've just emerged from a terrific conversation with the great Ed Sim of Bold Start Ventures. I call him one of the originals on the podcast because this guy's been a gladiator in terms of investing in New York City enterprise tech since the mid-90s. He's seen all the ups and downs up close and personal and is super open about all of it. And the guy keeps on ticking. He absolutely loves this stuff and his enthusiasm is contagious. And his fund, Bold Start, which he runs with a past guest on this podcast, Elliot Durbin, is on their third vehicle now. And they've really established themselves as one of the premier go-to funds in New York City if you're a team of mission-driven engineers starting out in the enterprise tech space. If you want to keep track of trends and deep insights in the enterprise tech space, Ed has a terrific blog called Beyond VC, as well as a weekly newsletter which you can access at both beyondvc.com and digest.beyondvc.com, respectively. In our talk, we cover everything from how Ed and Elliot got the fund going, to what they're looking for in founding teams, to their approach and philosophy on helping their portfolio companies get access, traction, and best advice from experienced mentors, to what's coming at us in the coming year in enterprise tech, in security, and in New York City writ large. Hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Let's head on up to the office. In the office, baby. Ed, awesome to have you on. How are you? Good, good. Hey, thanks for having me on as well. I, I love your podcast, so and and I love uh, the guests you've had in the past. Thank you. It's a pleasure, and I want everyone to know I've got one of the originals on today. Uh, he's been at it since the '90s in VC in New York City, and we're going to get a lot of uh, historical perspective on how this ecosystem has evolved. Uh, Ed, we had your partner at Bold Start, Elliot, on last summer, and it was a great conversation. Uh, and you guys were embarking on your raise for Fund 3. I think you had had your first close by then, maybe 20 mil, if I'm not mistaken. Absolutely correct. Uh, first close of 20 mil in uh, July of 2015. And the second and final close was the end of September last year, a little over a year later. Just to get that out of the way, what, where are you at in terms of your vintage? What fund are you on? How much have you raised and all that? Sure, sure. So um, current fund is Fund 3. The technical vintage is the vintage of the first close, which is uh, 2015. The current fund size was well oversubscribed. Our, our target fund size for fund three was 30 million. We ended up with 47 million. And yeah, so pretty excited about that. Uh, when Elliot and I first started this, we had a deliberate plan. Um, you know, it's kind of like a startup. We, we thought to ourselves, can we find enough enterprise seed deals? Would there be enough kind of opportunity in New York, let alone just enterprise in general? This was in 2010, early 2010. 
And if that was successful, could we go out and raise our Series A round, right? That was kind of like fun too, where we initially had our first close of 10 million and we ended up with about 17. And once again, we had to prove ourselves out. We had to figure out, you know, can we find enough enterprise deals? Can we get the allocations we want? Can we get pro rata? And finally, fund three was the culmination of, of a lot of that work. Right. And so congratulations on that. That's, that's huge. Now, Elliot gave you some serious props when he was on the show. He was like, you know, Ed had the big insight back back when, I guess, 2010 or before, that this was even possible, that you could start a company in the enterprise space for a lot less money than it had been true historically. He said, I didn't have that insight. And he thinks it was because you had just been in the scene that much longer, maybe an extra decade. What was going on? What led to this? I don't know. How did you throw down this bet that early? Uh, I won't call the insights magical or anything, but just the fact that I've been doing it so long, I think Elliot might just be saying that I'm old. That's another yeah, way. Right, right. But yeah, <laughs> amazingly, you don't have gray hair. I'm looking at him on Skype. He's got dark hair. He's, he looks youthful. What the hell? Yeah, I got. I, I, I like stories. So I'll start with a story. Um, you know, a, a success story that goes under the radar is Live Person. Uh, it's a public company. It's probably got about a $600 million market cap. Rob Lucasio, you should have him on the show at some point in time. He is still the founder and CEO of the business for a public company and is generating some significant revenue, probably about $200 million a year revenue. And I remember when we funded his business, it was in the, he was creating the live chat category for e-commerce sites and for websites back in 1998. And that first round was a $3 million round that we led um, uh, in investment, uh, sub 10 million pre-money. And within 15 months, he raised $100 million and went public. We were literally the, the last IPO um, kind of, uh, you know, in, in the window before the whole world blew up. And well, may, maybe that, it, maybe the initial investment was 99, but the whole point was it was very fast. He raised a lot of money. And the, and the two things that I saw, he was creating the ASP market. That was called the application service provider market. So if you're old, you know, that you kind of know that's what SaaS was. But the only difference was that he had to build out his, all, his own data centers and, and he, had to, he had to hire and scale up and build out his data centers like um, as if he had scaled to a million customers. And today it's so much easier, right? Because you can actually audio scale on demand. You don't have to put up that upfront cost. You don't have to raise $100 million. If Chase comes to you and says, I want to sign up and be your customer, you don't have to go through a major security audit because they kind of trust AWS. Well, kind of, but you know, it, it, it's, it's an easier process. Um, you don't have to scale up uh, as if you're serving a, you know, a million customers right off the bat because you can auto scale. So that was a big fundamental shift that I kept seeing over time, kind of having been through that, that journey and experience. Yeah, so, so what also happened was GoToMeeting as well. So we, um, I led that first round of GoToMeeting. I was on the board until we exited to, to Citrix in 2004, first investment in 99. Once again, hosted ASP model. Before SaaS was ever around, we probably raised about $35 million, ended up having a pretty good exit to, to Citrix, and it performed pretty well. And once again, I got to see the amount of money you had to invest you know, in that round as you got successful just to build out data centers, data centers, hiring people, security, all that stuff. So fast forward, a lot of founders that were part of Live Person or GoToMeeting started reaching out to me uh, in 2010 and said, hey, you know what, I'm going to start a new company. And there's this new thing called uh, EC2. 
and everyone's talking about consumer, how amazing and how easy it is to launch a consumer company. And they said, I can do it for the enterprise. I don't need to spend, there's open source software. I can pull that off the shelf. You know, I can scale on demand. And I, I think, you know, there's this whole mantra back then of nail it, then scale it, right? Nail the idea, nail the value proposition, then scale it. So take those factors together. Elliot and I got together and said, hey, um, let's see if we can do enterprise seed. See if that's viable. See if that, you know, companies can raise a million, million and a half dollars and get somewhere. And, you know, prior to that, I had personally seeded a few uh, enterprise companies. I personally seeded uh, Eucalyptus Software, which was a hybrid cloud computing platform that ended up selling to HP. Um, so that was a hybrid cloud back in 2009 that I had initially funded it. So it, we were way too early, trust me, but it, it's starting to evolve now for sure. Back in 2010, you had that uh, sort of view on things. You're raising money, you're starting a fund. I, I'm guessing this knowledge wasn't mainstream and that LPs weren't, you know, clamoring to back such a, a preposterous premise that is going to be that easy and that cheap. I mean, how many seed enterprise firms were there? I mean, was this even done? Um, there weren't any uh, enterprise seed, uh, seed funds focused exclusively on, on this. And, and that was, there were probably only 20 micro VCs at the time. Um, and, you know, guys like Jeff from SoftTech, who, who did a phenomenal job and and so besides that, you know, I said, we've got to be really focused and, and do this really, really well. And that, that was kind of our, our thinking behind it. And, uh, yeah, you know, a lot of investors were pretty skeptical. Uh, they, they tracked us for, for quite a while before they, they put a dollar into the fund. Here we are. Now you're running a $47 million fund. You're on your third fund, and this is uh, conventional stuff. Well, let me ask you this. Like, uh, I know you guys are very early investors. You talk to people really early. You, 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 both of you have been super helpful to my students at Columbia that are dipping a toe into the enterprise space. And what is your philosophy and approach in, in the early stage and talking to founders early? Elaborate on that for us a little bit. Yeah, you know, it, I, I like to think to ourselves, well, first of all, the way we've positioned ourselves is I think things have gotten way too complicated at the seed stage. People say, oh, I'm pre-seed or I'm seed or I'm post-seed. But you know what? Elliot and I kind of simplified it. Uh, we own the URL firstcheck.vc. <laughs> we just want to be the first check into your business. And, and, and that requires two things. Looking at fund three, it's kind of stratified. But first check means, uh, you know, it, it could be two young entrepreneurs um, who are engineers. We always find engineering-driven founders because we think – um, you know, they have a nose for product. Uh, they, they can be more efficient. They can build very quickly. When times get rough, you know, they'll still crank through it. Um, so, so we love that. Um, but, you know, you can do two or three founders, but they may just need 500K, right? So we, we may put, you know, 250, 300 in, kind of lead that, that early round. Then there's the other bucket of founders where we've invested in, in, I think already in fund three, we've got three repeat founders that have round trip from fund one. <laughs> so, That's a great endorsement. That's a really great endorsement. That's yeah, thank you. And, and in, to in total, I think we have six or seven found uh, other founders that are advisors to our fund that we've previously backed, that we've backed again, uh, kind of in the fund. So with these repeat founders that we know really well, I mean, we've been through the wars with these folks. So it's just a matter of, are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. What are you doing? Great. And uh, we, we kind of so that round is different. There's, that's more like a two to three million dollar seed round, right? I mean, that, that's that's border where we'll write, you know, a bigger check. 
And that, and, that, and that, the size of your fund, the larger size of this third fund, that gives you that flexibility, I'm guessing, to go bigger early with the folks that you know well. Absolutely. Yeah. So we'll write on average 750 to a million K checks in the folks that we know uh, even better. And so I think the story that you're asking is a lot of times, if we don't know you, we want to spend time with you. We want to spend time with you when you're thinking about your business, when you have your idea. It's always nice to be able to see the data points of evolution from I've got an idea, uh, you know, I've got an alpha out and a couple folks are kind of playing around with it. Right. So that that's always kind of a kind of a nice way to get to know people. And, you know, by the way, I, I think the biggest thing about having a bigger fund for us going through the process was not that we're going to change who we are. We always want to be kind of that first check enterprise seed. We don't want to lead a rounds, although we want to back up the truck in, in the A and B rounds over time. So it gives us the flexibility to keep investing through the life cycle. And, um, and so the second point is, too, we're not a spray and pray either. So we're not going to have 50 portfolio companies. We'll probably have 20 to 22 core portfolio companies where we real, spend real time. I kind of think about it the way VC used to be back, back in the early days. You write smaller checks. You spend real time with the founders. Uh, and help them get to the next phase. So maybe a long-winded way to answer that answer that question, but you know that's kind of how we think about the world. Um, one other point, though, I want to say is that you asked about what we look for in founders. I think the best founders, what we like to say, are mission-driven founders. Many times they start a company not because they put on a whiteboard and say, here are 10 different ideas I can go after and I'm going to choose this one. There's some lifelong passion about some problem that they've been trying to solve, either a problem that they experience on a day-to-day basis and they have that aha moment about how to automate it or do it better, um, or maybe it's just been a continuation down the path of, of a problem they've continued to try to evolve. And I'll give you two examples. One could be um, Brad Birnbaum and Jeremy Surreal, who are the co-founders of Customer with a K. They, they're basically creating a new category, CRM, uh, for customer support. Uh, previously to that, they, were, uh, they had founded two other uh, customer support-related companies, uh, uh, most recent being Assistly, which was sold to Salesforce and became Desk.com. So you, you take that aha moment. They took a year off and worked with uh, uh, Sean Parker um, on airtime, just kind of helping him out. And they had this revelation on the train one day that, you know, Sean kept telling them about the Facebook newsfeed. And the revelation they had in the trade was, what if we take that idea of a Facebook newsfeed, and in that newsfeed instead, it's related to a CRM, meaning that anytime someone reaches out and has an issue, I don't care what uh, messaging channel it comes from, whether it's Twitter or, or the phone or email, I, I want to know everything about that person immediately, i.e. integrations into what you ordered, integrations into Shopify, all instantly kind of, you know, magically without searching for anything. So that was the big uh, aha moment for them. But that's just a continuation of their journey that they started, you know, 20 years ago with their first customer support business. That, that was pretty exciting for us. I've heard you say before that over these, over these cycles, being an enterprise for so long, you're seeing variations on a theme. It's almost like some kind of classical music or jazz or something. It's like it's new efforts new technologies to keep serving those customers in different ways. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. you know, it, it, that that's awesome. I mean, I hate to <laughs> – being uh, in the business for twenty over 20 years, uh, I can say that I don't want to oversimplify it. But, I mean, look, let's look at the enterprise space. There's, there's a few things you can do. One is you can sell better, market better, 
improve your tech operations on the back end, right? Reduce costs, uh, allow you to be more agile, um, and also make workers more productive. I mean, those are four, and those are four pretty big buckets. But those buckets keep changing. The only thing new that came around in that bucket was the security market that came out of nowhere in the late 90s when Checkpoint came out, right? That's the only kind of other area that's more of a horizontal play. But outside those buckets, um, the other thing that's changed, too, is how you go to market. Back when I first started, it was always about hiring these expensive direct sales folks. It was a top-down model, you know, six-month to one-year sales cycles, expensive sales teams, sales engineers, the whole thing. And the only thing that changed was that um, – you know, the whole bottom-up model kind of came around. That's with content marketing, with downloading open source, try it before you buy. And so looking at kind of the combinations of those two have been really, really interesting. You know, I mean, from our perspective, um, having that marketing machine, having the ability to try software before you actually buy it has been phenomenal. And then eventually you can layer on sales folks once you kind of prove that out. So, um, so anyway, there's certain dials that you can change. And that's kind of what we've seen over time, the, the evolution of, of getting to these customers and, and building a business. When I talk to veterans who've been in a business for a long time, what emerges from me, and, and you know, I've been talking to so many folks on, on Venture Studio, uh, a certain simplicity emerges. They kind of can segment things and they can have a more orchestral view and a framework that evolved. This, and that must be very nice to have. I'm, I'm guessing at this at this phase in your career. Uh, yeah, it, it's taken a long, and I'm always learning every day, every call, every new founder that, that that I meet. You always have to be curious, intellectually curious, and and just know that you don't know everything. I mean, our, our mantra, the the one thing that I've learned is that um, being a good VC, I like to say, jack of all trades, master of none. The second that you think you're the best in class at something, there's always going to be someone better than you. So you have to have some humility around that and find someone better than you, whether they're an expert in AI an expert in sales. So what, what Elliot and I have done over the years is try to surround ourselves with, you know, entrepreneurs who we, who we number one, enjoy hanging out with, right? Because I think that's kind of, uh, you know, life is short. You want to be with people that you really enjoy being with, uh, regardless of what you're doing. Uh, and then two is, you know, kind of best in class at what they do. Uh, you know, for example, we brought on a venture partner, Jeff Leventhal, who, who I've known for over 20 years. Uh, I gave him his first term sheet. And... Uh, he turned it down, not because you know he didn't like me, it's because he sold his business. So Jeff, <laughs> Jeff has had a lifelong mission of transforming how people work. And prior to his new company, WorkRails, which, which we led and Elliot is on the board of, we, um, uh, he had started WorkMarket, uh, which raised about $50 million from Union Square and Spark and, and a number of other top investors. And he was basically trying to bring together um, uh, SaaS and private marketplaces to large Fortune 500s to uh, help them manage all their freelancers. And uh, WorkRails is a continued evolution of that. But I'm only bringing him up because Jeff actually joined us as a venture partner as well. So he's pretty he's pre he's running his business on a day to day basis, but he's been very helpful to helping kind of counsel founders and entrepreneurs just about what it's like to scale from zero to 200 or 300 people. And, and, and so my point is that I don't know, you know, he's better than me at founding companies, right? So I'm going to bring on, you know, an awesome person who can help our portfolio companies think through some of those issues as well. Has the sort of your personal evolution and, you know, how you got better, is it, is it about your network? Is it about the deepening of the network? 
What, what would you say has made you better over the years? Uh, a couple of them. One is making tons of mistakes, right? I mean, I, I happen to be, see, people will say that I was uh, uh, unfortunate having lived through the, the, the worst time in history for tech, right, in 2001 to 2004. And so, yes, during the time, it was incredibly painful. I mean, I had to go in and, um, you know, we're cut and burn back. You know, remember that, that big Sequoia memo coming out? Yeah, the, the, the doomstone. <laughs> I remember it vividly. Yeah. 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 And I was flying around all over the country. You know, I was on boards and, you know, had to had to, you know, fire people, and let people go. I mean, that, that, that's that's, you know, and you get the empathy for a CEO when they have to do that. But I had to go in and do those things. I was interim CEO for a company uh, for about six weeks. I was interim CFO at companies and it's not fun. Right. So I think having that perspective is really, really important. Right. So learning about all, all the mistakes you've made and, and that I'll continue to make, to be honest with you. Um, but I think uh, I was telling Elliot the other day about what I think a good board member is. You know, there's some board members who come in and tell founders what to do. You know, I like to ask questions and hear what the founders have. And, and I'll make I'll make you know, constructive suggestions. And then what I, what I also like to do is follow that with, hey, why don't you meet this person, right? So it's like, hey, I'm having trouble with sales. Like, I keep getting stuck in this funnel, you know. And, okay, I was like, I've seen that so many times before. You know, here's an advisor, uh, let's say Bernardo. Bernardo was the original uh, VP of marketing at GoToMeeting. Then he ran Citrix Online. Then he went to Atlassian and, and was GM of the collaboration group. Bernardo's an advisor to our fund, very close friends. I'm like, hey, Bernardo, can you go in and, help kind of diagnose our funnel for a little bit and kind of help them think through, you know? And so he's done that with a few of our companies where they came back to him and said, you know what? Bernardo showed me what the aha moment is in onboarding, right? You know, we just went from, he just tripled our rate and it could be something as simple as this, right? This is, it could be something as simple as this. Let's say, um, you know, like what are our portfolio companies? Let's say you sign up and then what you have to do is import all this data in, right? And then kind of try to set up a dashboard. But I was like, just put dummy data in. So as soon as they sign in, they see this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful dashboard. Say, if you want one of these, and, and you can play around with it, but if you want one of these, then upload your own data. So that little step, showing the beauty, the magic, before they even upload their own stuff, you know, transformed a lot of stuff, a lot of kind of, um, uh, uh, you know, people into customers, right? So I think little things like that, that people have learned, and he's best in class, I think, what he does. Um, and so I like to back things up with, I know what your problem is. You can probably have a better onboarding process and that I don't want to leave it at that. Let me introduce you to someone that can help you. Right. So I, I think that's been the evolution. The fact that I can see the problem and then also help them uh, with someone that's best in class uh, in our network that is willing to help them. And I think that's a big difference between a VC tell, that tells you what to do and a VC that helps you kind of get there. Right. And, and also over the years, those those relationships deepen and you have, frankly, the stroke to reach out to some people who you've known for a long time and they're willing to say, yes, Ed, I'm going to go, I'll spend the time with them. That might not have been true in your first two, three years as, as a VC, right? <laughs> Definitely not. They're like, who are you? Why are you calling me? <laughs> right. exactly. I don't know. Right. So it's one of those things that, that have come with, you know, people say, uh, I think, you know, you just have to be young at heart to, do, to kind of do VC, to kind of look at tech. Uh, but I do think that the longer you've been in the business, you know, especially from my perspective, I've only been doing enterprise for 20 plus years. So rightly or wrongly, that's what I've done, whether it's kind of been hot or whether it's been not. And so I have built some very strong relationships over the years. 
And uh, I think it's hard to kind of replicate, and same with Jeff, and same with Elliot for 10 years, very hard to replicate kind of that and just wake up one day and say, I want to do enterprise. You can't just wake up and say, I want to do enterprise. You know, you can't wake up and say, um, that takes time to meet the CIOs, the CTOs, you know, the buyers in the enterprise network, understanding what their problems are, how they're moving to the cloud. That, that takes time and focus. So, and there's some longevity that's important uh, uh, in, this, in the enterprise business. And I know you guys well enough to know that you also kind of play things back from, you know, success all the way back to, to zero. In other words, when you're meeting with, with entrepreneurs and teams, you're thinking, what do we need to do to get to Series A? What do we need to do to get beyond that? What kind of factors go into that calculation? So, so many seed funds and micro VCs are so practical now. They're like, look, you know, the, the bar is high on getting to Series A. What do we need to do? How do you guys think about that? Yeah, I, I like to say that there's no, <laughs> there's no formula. Okay. Uh, um, there's no formula for this, and 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 there's there's different kinds of companies, right? People, and I put up a post about um, you know the three different kinds of Series A's, right? And and uh, a while back, and and one one Series A was kind of the preemptive Series A, meaning that you you may not even have your product out, but you're a killer killer team in a killer market, reinventing something big, where all of a sudden you know. Uh, Three months after the seed round, the Series A VCs are banging down the door because they just want to put money into your business. That that's reserved for the very few, and you don't plan on that. It just happens. And there's good things and bad things about it, right? There's good things because you you raise a lot of cash, and in case the world blows up, right? <laughs> Given the current uh, world, uh, you've got you've got a lot of cash in the bank. But also, it puts it puts some pressure in a way because now you're you're a company that hasn't launched their product, and you've got to get to Series B. Right. So, so you skip the Series A because you have the money. You've got to get to Series B. Right. So that's kind of one kind of Series A. Uh, series a. Um, on the flip side, there's the other one where you're you're and I'm only talking about enterprise yeah. where, where I've seen is, you know, you're a first time founder and you've got some good metrics. Right. You're at 7500 K kind of MRR and maybe the revenue is a little lumpy and people just want to and maybe they're not convinced that the market exists yet. And so they just kind of wait and wait and wait and wait. So those are really tough ones, right? Because these founders are seeing the, the other folks who have not even launched a product yet and have raised 10, 10 to $12 million. And then, you know, these folks are generating revenue and having customers and, and kind of struggling, right? So, you know, and then there's kind of the in-between, right? Kind of the in-between one. And, and the only point I'm, I'm bringing this up is that there's no one-size-fits-all kind of formula, right? For example, I was talking to one of our founders the other day. He's selling into some large enterprise clients, large banks and whatnot, and, and, and this pipeline has been kind of inbound. People have been reaching him through the content marketing, and he said, you know, I want to raise a Series A, and I, and I asked him, when are you going to convert the first pilot into, um, into a large 750K plus contract? He goes, it's going to take me like four or five months. You know, I have a signed pilot for like 50K, but it's going to take me six or seven months. So I said, look. It, it, if you had a formula, it'd be like, okay, you can't go out and raise until you have that. So then I said, let's look at and explore other options. He's like, well, what if I get five paying pilots and they're referenceable? I was like, yeah, that that and and and, and if two or two or three convert, so while it's not a 750k deal, the odds are pretty high. The fact of the matter is, people are using it and engaging with it on a daily basis. So revenue in that situation. Uh, in my mind, was le- less important versus kind of the folks who were willing to be referenceable at the pilot stage, the fact that they engaged with them on a daily basis. And so then what we do is we've got a series of uh, Series A firms that we always like to chat with who know you know security well or know 
Sasswell, and we asked them, like, hey, we've got this great founder doing this. He's creating a new market. What would you like to see? So we're always trying to get, get data points and feedback, and it's constantly changing. If anyone that tells you that says this is the way to get it done, they're lying to you because there's no one way to get it done. Got you. And, and are there enough Series A and beyond VCs in the enterprise space here in New York, or do you go West Coast? Who are the players out there? What's the landscape like? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, look, this, this Series A folks in New York, there's lots of capital here. Um, our founders actually love to go to the West Coast. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I'll give a shot. The first smart guys led one of our uh, uh, investments uh, out of Boston. Um, um, so so I, I think that they're pretty technical, right? And, and, and they're pretty rock solid uh, investors. Uh, but a lot of the times our founders love to hit the West Coast. Um, and, you know, they want to they want to hit Sand Hill. And, and, and the fact of the matter is not not all of them uh, will get that money. Uh, but it gives them good exposure, right? You know, the conversations are, are different sometimes uh, on that level. They, they, want to, they may want to see less uh, traction, um, but they want to understand the market opportunity is huge. Uh, they want to understand there's real technology and real IP there. Um, so, you know, it's just different conversations for sure. Last year, we had uh, my friend Steph Palmieri from SoftTech with Jeff there, and she said, no, of course, she's a consumer investor, or, yeah. but she does some SaaS and stuff, and she does deals in New York as well. And she said, for a lot of New York companies, it's always nice to have a angel or micro VC from the valley in your cap table in the beginning, so you kind of have a head start when you go out at Series A. Does that resonate in the enterprise space or not? It, it, it totally resonates. So we do it two ways. Um, one is you know, we think about kind of why New, why New York, right? And, and so I always like to say when Willie Sutton was asked why Rob Banks, he goes, that's where the money is. So if you look at the, if you look at the concentration of, you know, Fortune 100s kind of around New York of, of banks and insurance companies and healthcare firms that are very progressive in terms of their IT spending and the ability to, to take risk on startup technology, I think that's pretty massive. So for our enterprise startups here that we fund, we like to think of ourselves as a bridge to the West Coast, right? So, so we believe that we can provide pretty good access to what's happening on the West Coast through strategic partners or even the VCs that are coming out. I mean, we had Sequoia lead the Series A of one of our company's security scorecard, which is you know pretty unusual for them to lead a Series A. Um, and on the flip side, we also have about a third of our investments on the West Coast, and you may ask yourself, why would, uh, how does the seed fund invest in the West Coast? Um, you know, what's the value add? And, and frankly, I, I can tell you the same way that Steph said, having a West Coast micro VC on the cap table to see that, it's the same way that, that they should have an East Coast or a New York based micro VC on their cap table because they want access to enterprise buyers. You know, some of our advisors, for example, you know, one of our advisors was the head of enterprise architecture at Pfizer. He'll sit down with a straw and say, hey, look, this is what you need to do to sell to me. These are the three things you need to do. This is what you need to build. So that kind of advice is invaluable because, you know, a lot of times on the West Coast, you're talking to other tech firms. You know, what you really want to do is eventually understand as I'm building my product out 12, 18 months ahead, what do I need to do to build for a real, you know, big uh, old school company that, that will pay me a lot. So it, it kind of works. So we like to say we're a bridge to the valley. Yeah. One and kind of a very fluent way. And Elliot and I are probably out there once a month. One of us is out there once a month. Show you around, give you a taste of the business, you know? 